You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. Hey, everybody, you are watching or listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. Today is a very special episode of the hashtag FemSquire series. My guest today is FemSquire Diana Schimmel. She's a partner at the law firm Martine, Katz, Scanlon, and Schimmel, located in New Jersey, and they practice exclusively divorce and family law. Thank you so much for joining me today, Diana. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm excited to talk to you. And I have to first point out the Frida Kahlo pillow that you have in your background, which has been the topic of much conversation between you and me. It has, it has. Yes, and inspired me to get my own. So if you're listening, I'm pointing to my Frida Kahlo pillow. So um, an inspiring woman, much like you. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I have to give credit to where credit is due for the pillow. My partner, Sarah, is the one who, who got it, who gave it to me, and, and now she lives in my office, and I love it. <laughs> well, she has started a trend, for sure. Fantastic. I love it. So I start everything out with the same question, as you know. Where did you go to college, and what did you think you wanted to be when you grow up? That's a great question. So I went to George Mason University down in Fairfax, Virginia, right outside of D.C., and I thought I wanted to be a ballerina. Um, the story that my mom actually always tells is when I was in Brownies, they had a you know dress up like as whatever you want to be when you grow up day. And I dressed up as a ballerina lawyer. So I wore like a ballet leotard, the pink tights, the shoes, my mom's 80s shoulder pad blazer over it and brought a clipboard, you know, a little portfolio with me. And, you know, it just was always the two things, the two interests. So I actually went to college knowing I was going to head to law school. And so I thought, why not major in something that I'm interested in? So I actually was a double major. And for the majority of my time, I spent focused on, you know, my dance career, um, knowing that I was taking a government class here and there or a poli-sci class here and there and doing, um, you know, the extras to get me ready for law school. But that's you know, really, I thought I was trying to do both for sure. That is an interesting combination. I haven't heard that one before. Yeah. So especially at such a young age. So you wanted yeah. to be a dancer. So that suggests you had a creative side. But then you have this other intellectual brain too. No, I would say so. I think the other part about it is ballet is very uh, disciplined uh, in the same sense that you can be graceful and, you know, follow the steps and, and really be creative there. There is, you know, a discipline to it. And I think that translates to the lawyer side of, of my brain for sure. Um, but I really enjoyed doing both. And it was truly an outlet. I mean, I think obviously any type of physical activity, you get the endorphins going and you get, you know, an extra sort of expressive outlet. Um, but you're right. There's not a lot of people who wanted to be ballerina lawyers. And a lot of people, even now when I'm telling them a little bit about my background, they wonder about it. And 
you know, it raises an eyebrow, but I think people are intrigued about it for sure. Well, I'm kind of curious, how did you decide? I mean, obviously you had to pick one. You couldn't really do both. Why was law the one that won? So I got to the point where my dance career was starting to take over more and more and more and more. And they were really pushing me to make a choice between dropping one of the two majors. And when I say who they were, I mean the dance department at George Mason. Um, It was a really competitive program. I had to audition. It was, you know, a conservatory type setting. It wasn't just, you know, you show up and you want to be a dancer. I did have to, you know, earn my spot. And I wanted to do other things. I was, you know, at a school that was very heavily commuter based. So even though there's 35,000 kids at GMU, only about half of those kids live on campus. So we spent a lot of time in DC. I had an internship on Capitol Hill. I wanted to explore and do other stuff. I was in a sorority. I, you know, I wanted to be a college student. So when it came down to it and I I started figuring out, you know, do I want to just be in this hyper disciplined arena or do I want to explore a lot of other things knowing again that law was going to be my path I ended up dropping you know the dance major and ultimately when push comes to shove dance majors and dancers in general have a very limited shelf life they don't earn a ton they have to rely on their body being in peak condition just like athletes and you know I knew that that would be something that wouldn't sustain me in a lifelong situation and there was always something in me that wanted to do you know, law, something where I could help people, something where I could, you know, have and be a part of a profession that had that, that, that status that, that went along with it. That was something I was drawn to. Do you miss dance? Oh, all the time, (laughs) all the time. Yeah. Is there anything you do where you're still part of that world? You know, when I was living in Center City, there is a really great studio that did adult classes. So I would try to take class there. Um, and I definitely miss it. I watch, you know, the shows on TV, like, so you think you can dance and all those. And I, uh, I absolutely miss it. I've tried to tailor my physical activity into the same type of, of activity like yoga or Pilates or bar. Um, but no, I wish, I wish I could take class and now I'm somewhat vicariously living through my daughter. She loves to dance and we're going to get her into classes, I'm sure when she's older, but I wish there was more I could do about it. And there probably is, but I'm probably just being, you know, typical and lazy about it. Yeah, I was going to say, I have another femme squire that does tap and she still does it to this day. That's fantastic. I love that. I love that. You know, I probably just need to take a minute and actually do some research and find a class and get into the groove of it. But, you know, life gets in our, in our way. And best do, plans, do you feel so. like yeah. dance made you more graceful? Because my family always said that I should have taken ballet so that I would be more graceful because I'm not. So <laughs> I'm wondering what your opinion about that would be. Sure. I think not only does it lead to grace, but I think it also leads to poise. I think that performance is you know inherently a part of obviously learning the dances and the steps and then you know putting on that show but it's also equated i think in how i am in a courtroom um you know how i walk how i stand how i hold myself um and it's actually one of the things i've missed the most since the pandemic hit not being able to be in a courtroom and being able to strut to walk to you know do that somewhat of the performance sort of side of everything um, so I, I don't necessarily know if it added to grace and poise, but I absolutely think it honed it for sure. 
There are a lot of attorneys that I've spoken to that wanted to be in the performing arts and ended up in litigation. And I'm starting to think it's not really a coincidence. Oh, I agree with you. I think that there's a certain level of comfort that a lot of us have, us litigators have, for the public speaking, for the presentation, for the show of it a little bit. And I think there's certainly drama in it, too. Um, you know, that's why I'm always surprised when I meet someone who says they're an attorney, but they're maybe a little shyer or introverted, because we do have, you know, some of that, you know, extrovertedness to us that, uh, that lends itself to that, for sure. Well, I think that litigation is a completely different animal. Mm -hmm. There are people that are just terrified to go to court. I I remember in law school, there were people that would say, I want to be a corporate attorney. I'm not setting foot in court ever. To quote one of my favorite movies, it's not very highbrow, Clueless. (laughs) One of my faves too. Awesome. Okay. So Alicia Silverstone says that her dad is a litigator, the scariest kind of lawyer. Mm -hmm. And I, I think generally when people think of the law and order type lawyer, they think someone who goes to court. Yeah. So did you always know you, if you were going to put dance to the side, did you know that you were going to be in litigation, that you wanted to be in court? Absolutely. I definitely knew that. And, and to go back for a second, not only is Clueless one of my favorite movies, but so is Legally Blonde. And I quote it very often. She's like our legal spirit animal. So that to me resonates. And I think, you know, as campy as those movies are, they have some some real lessons to them. But yeah, I, I did want to always litigate. I never saw myself as someone who was going to be a transactional or a research-based attorney. And I think that is somewhat of the link between, you know, the dance and the, and the lawyer, you know, desire. And, and I think that part of it is the rush, the adrenaline, the experience that you get coupled with what you know you're doing for your client and, and what you're doing to help them. Well, why lawyer? I get that you felt like dance wasn't going to be something that you could really rely on to support yourself, but why law? Do you have lawyers in your family? What exposure did you have to the profession? That's a really great question. Everyone always says, oh, was your dad a lawyer? No, I actually don't have any lawyers in my immediate family, but the big inspiration for me was actually my grandmother, my dad's mom. She was a police officer in New York, in the NYPD, and she was a huge influence in my life. So she came out of you know high school at the height of depression era times, and everyone was pushing them at that time to go into civil service jobs. So I think around then, the people who went in to be police officers were maybe today not the people who would have. So these were maybe some of the academics or that would have today been professors or doctors, but they just couldn't afford it because of the times. And she was a part of the famous 1940 class of cops that had a really large class, but also had women in it. And she rose through the ranks, was an officer for 40 years, and really saw that career to the top. She was um, also very integral in women's rights within the force, um, in the sense that at a certain point, women were not allowed to sit for certain levels of promotion exams. And for her, that was just not acceptable. So she and another friend fought all the way up through to the New York Supreme Court, for the ability to be able to take those exams and to get promoted. And she won. And she ultimately, when she retired, was 
a very high ranking deputy chief. She was an answer on Jeopardy, which is super cool because of that. Wow. Um, yeah, and she was in the NYPD Museum. So for, for me, the inspiration was really her. She was always about breaking the boundaries, pushing forward in a very male-dominated career in you know the 60s, 70s, 80s. And that was the inspiration, I think, for me. I, I didn't want to be a police officer, but... I wanted to do something in law because of how highly she regarded it and how I saw her break those boundaries in a male dominated arena. And for better or worse, lawyering is a boys club or was and is slowly becoming not a boys club, but it is. And I wanted to, to make her proud and to push and to do some of that same boundary, you know, breaking work. That is really incredible. What an incredible role model to have Thank growing you. up. And I'm, especially impressed with her because even today, I don't believe that there are a lot of women in law enforcement. Of course, we see them more now, but when she was doing it, that was unusual. Oh, sure. I mean, there's, so when she was doing it, they had to wear skirts. They had purses to keep their guns in rather than holsters like the men. There was a notebook we found about some of the notes she was taking through training and through, you know, the academy. And they specifically would have them wear lipstick. You had to wear lipstick on duty to look, you know, a little bit more presentable. She was assigned to some of the more domestic level cases as opposed to like homicide or drug or any of that. And, you know, that was certainly not for, you know, her lack of skill in those other areas. They just weren't carving them out for women. So for her, it was very important when the opportunity came to fight that, that exam, you know, promotion exam, you know, for her to do it, she did. And, you know, it's funny, I've had clients in both the Philadelphia PD and in um, New Jersey, and everyone seems to have heard of her or know of her or something, because she really paved the way, her and her, um, her colleague who, who took the case together for, for everyone, you know, now who's a female cop. So what's her name? Gertrude Schimmel. Who is Gertrude Schimmel would be the correct Jeopardy answer. Yes. <laughs> I'll have to keep that in mind. That's, that's incredible. I'm, I feel like I need to interview her. Oh my gosh. I wish you could. She passed away, but she was somebody who was so unique. I mean, everybody always talks about how they have the storybook grandmother. Like I had one grandmother who would teach me to bake and sew and sing nursery rhymes with me. And, you know, was always like the prim and proper 1950s grandmother. And then I had Gert, my other grandmother who, you know, you weren't allowed to call her before noon because she was sleeping and she played poker. And, you know, she was just a lot more, um, you know, of a straight shooter and a progressive. So I really got the best of both worlds for sure. And spent a lot of time talking to her and I had a very close relationship with her because I knew, you know, at a certain point she wasn't going to be around to talk to us anymore. And, and she actually, she did a lot of interviews for the, the NYPD. So there's a lot of like audio interviews of her and articles and things like that. So at least we have that history. Well, I will have to Google her and I think yeah. everyone else should do that as well. And I have to bring up the fact that I think there is going to be a long line of strong women in your family because I did see a recent video of your daughter on your social media where you were saying, who runs the world? And she was saying, girls. Mm -hmm. And how old is she? She is 17, almost 18 months. So yeah. she's young, but she knows what's up from the start. <laughs> yeah. So I really loved that. So I think you're already doing a wonderful job with her. 
Oh, thank you. You know, it, it's, it's funny. My partners had gotten her that onesie in the video. She's wearing the Ruth Bader Ginsburg descent collar onesie. And, you know, I put her in that just, you know, to sleep in the night before as like a regular, you know, choice. I wasn't thinking anything of it. And it happened to actually be the night that Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. So I put Vivian to sleep. Maybe an hour later, I got the news that RBG had died and it was, I just got chills because it was so ironic that I chose that, that onesie. And then the next day, you know, she was eating breakfast and I was just going over that with her and seeing her repeat, hearing her repeated and seeing her, you know, in the onesie, it just was a nice moment. Yeah. That is interesting how, what you chose to put her in that night. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you were approaching graduation at undergrad and you knew at that point that you wanted to go to law school and where did you go? So I went to Widener University in Harrisburg and I knew, you know, being originally from the Philadelphia area, I knew I wanted to go back to the Pennsylvania, New Jersey area. And so I applied to 12 law schools, which is an insane amount of law schools. But the reason I chose Widener was because they have a really practical education. They were very in tune with not just this high level theory, but they had clinics and job placement in the community. And they were really about actual learning about how to be a lawyer because for better or worse, I don't think that law school really prepares us for what it means to be an attorney, what it means to run a business, and especially not what it means to be a family law attorney. I think I had one elective in family law, and it was before the sweeping changes in both states' code. So I got no knowledge from law school on that. But I also chose Harrisburg because it was the capital, obviously, of the state, but it was a little bit farther removed from the hustle and bustle of the big city. And I really wanted to focus during law school as opposed to be distracted by, you know, my friends and things like that in the city. So it was a good experience overall. I liked it. I liked Widener. What kind of clinics did you do? So it was involved in trial advocacy and I had a job all three summers or three years rather into summers at a, a mid-sized firm in Harrisburg. And, and I, I worked at that firm mainly because they did a variety of different practice areas. So I specifically wanted them to give me work in all of the different arenas. I didn't go into law school thinking family law was definitely for me. I knew it was out there as an option, but I got to, to see each and every practice area through that. And then th we had a civil clinic as well, where you could, you know, get the licensure and things like that to, to work as a student attorney and do volunteer work there. But my practical experience really came from working at the firm every summer and into, you know, my third year. And I think that was smart. I had a, a, a former law clerk actually talk to me recently about that. And her question was, what advice do you have? And I said, look, if you aren't sure what discipline you want to do when you get out of school, or if you want to work at a big firm, or you want to clerk, or you want to work for an agency, get the experience while you're in law school, take all the different options and see what fits for you. Cause it's better to do it there than to come out and have to switch jobs a bunch of times, finding that you don't, you know, like what, what you're doing. Um, I think that was great advice. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I hope it resonated. And I think I came out of school like right around the time of the recession in 2008 and it was not the traditional legal trajectory. I think everybody was so caught up in going to the big firms and I never wanted to do that. That was never my style. So after doing, you know, a brief clerkship and, and doing 
um, some work at the Philly PDs, I went out on my own. So I've really only ever been in private practice, either as my own boss or with partners. And there's a freedom to that. There's, you know, a really great autonomy that, that I think I would never change, um, you know, as difficult as that is. But it further solidified that law school really does not prepare you how to be a business owner or how to be a lawyer at the same time as being a business owner. It doesn't. But how did you know that you wanted to be a business owner before you even went into law school? I think for me, I've always been a leader and I also don't love having to subscribe to, you know, the classic nine to five rigidity. Obviously we're beholden to court schedules and things like that. But for me, I'm about, you know, the balance. So if I wanted to come in at 10 and work till six, or if I wanted to take some time off or deal with my family or, or a personal thing or something like that, I wanted to have that flexibility. I also know that it's super important to set boundaries. And for me, I wanted to be able to turn off my cell phone at a certain time. I, also knew I wanted real experience. I had friends of mine from law school who didn't see the inside of a courtroom for five years or were thrilled over questioning one witness in a big trial that was over three days when there I was handling multiple trials, you know, all the time in court three, four times a week. I think I wanted a little bit of a different trajectory. And I think a lot of people think you have to you know, keep your head down and work the 80 hours a week at the big firm. And that's the only way you can make money and be successful. And that just wasn't my style. And I, I think that maybe the creative side of, of my personality came out there because I didn't, you know, I knew that from very early on, I didn't want to do the other side of it. So I, ha- I had a friend of mine who out of school, she ended up working for Target. So their headquarters is in uh, Minnesota. And she was thrilled to be reviewing like the those statements you get in like the credit card uh, mailers. And she was like riveted by that. To me, that is like watching paint dry. So oh, you know, yeah. I knew right away that that was not for me. I always wondered who actually drafts those. Well, now my friend does. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's not for me either. But yeah. we draft settlement agreements. That's contractual. Sure. I mean, I think that for me, settlement agreements, you know, not that I think that they're super fun, but they're really the end. They're the period to the end of the sentence. They're what we've spent the whole sort of case working towards. So, and, and I also think those are unique. Those are unique to families. So I'm not putting together the same exact settlement agreement every single time. There's some creativity with drafting settlement agreements too, that you don't get when you're drafting a, you know, shareholder agreement. Sure. Yeah. I mean, people ask me all the time, they'll say like, well, what does, what does everybody else do? Or what's like the typical? And I'll say, look, I can give you examples of other people, but what does your family do? How does your family celebrate the holiday? I can't tell you that what worked for another family is going to work for you. So there is a creativity level to it. You're right. Yeah. I mean, I think our world is changing. For instance, you know, it used to be that moms always got custody mm-hmm. and dads had every other weekend. I'm sure you're seeing that that's changing. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, and not only that, I'm also not just seeing mom and dad. So I'm, I'm obviously seeing grandparents, aunts, uncles, but same sex couples uh, very often. And I'm really encouraged to see that because, you know, we've made a lot of strides in both Pennsylvania and New Jersey in both arenas and expanding the rights of not only third parties, but also of, of parents in same sex couples and families. So we're definitely not in the, you know, mom gets automatic primary custody world anymore. 
you know, when I first started practicing family law, you know, over a decade ago, I would say that sometimes there was a judge who was still biased like that. And I've certainly come into contact with judges who are not as open-minded about our uh, ever-changing world. But luckily, you know, those are judges who have since retired and we're really seeing a much new progressive guard come into place. Do you think that that's just something generational? I do. Like I had a case in uh, a county in Pennsylvania where the judge was nearing his senior status. He was in his 70s. Not only were they a same-sex couple, but one of them was a transgender female um, and had transitioned from male to female through reassignment surgery. Both Both parties wanted to be called mom or mommy. And I just don't think he could fully get his head around what he was seeing and hearing. And I think it definitely informed for, you know, better or worse, his decision-making when it came to custody. Did you say that you clerked after your law school? Yeah. So when I came out of school, there were no legal jobs because like I said, it was that height of the recession. So I very, very quickly worked in a, a litigation firm, a commercial litigation firm, left that. And then I clerked for a juvenile dependency judge, which was eye-opening to say the least, especially in Center City, Philly. I got a lot of really good training from her and she was, you know, another great role model, somebody who, you know, would sit on the bench in her robe, but be wearing like seven inch heels. Basically, (laughs) she was very stylish and very much, you know, broke the mold on what a judge should look like or what you think they look like. She was fantastic. I I worked with her. um, And then I was at the public defender's office in Philadelphia. They have a child advocacy unit. So it's sort of separate and apart from the public defender that you typically would think of. But that's really where I got my litigation experience. I mean, I was thrown in with 165 cases, going to court three, four times a week with minimal supervision, just sort of being pushed out the nest. Um, And that's really where I honed, you know, my cross-examination and my courtroom presence. And, you know, here I was, you know, 25 doing all that kind of stuff. So how did you feel about that though? I mean, I knew that I wanted to do litigation, but I, when I was in law school, I was still a little shy and nervous about public speaking, but I knew I was going to have to get over it. I had almost like a little too much confidence and I needed to polish it up a little bit, but I, no, I, I liked going into court right away and I wanted that right away. And I think what I saw in that job opportunity was a place to be in a collective environment with other attorneys who were learning, but also to learn from people who I saw and sort of just try as I go. I'm very much a observe and then do it myself afterwards kind of person rather than, you know, theorize it or look at it in a book or anything like that. And I also think that, you know, there's something to be said about just trying it and picking yourself up if you fall, but, you know, keep going and going and going, you know, on the other side of that though, I'd be lying if I said there wasn't some level of imposter syndrome, you know, thinking, well, here am I, you know, this young girl going in trying to advocate on behalf of, you know, the abused and neglected kids in the city of Philadelphia. I used to think about that actually before I even had my own daughter. Um, Here I am talking to people about what they should and shouldn't be doing as co-parents or parents. And I don't even have a child myself. So there is, you know, a level of, like I said, that imposter syndrome that creeps up every now and then, but you have to remind yourself that, you know, you've got this, you're smart, you've got the experience and you know what you're doing and people rely on you. And if you're not confident in yourself, then it's going to come across and the client isn't going to have that confidence in you. And I think, you know, it's important to give them that, especially in our field. People are in the worst part of their lives and they want to find that, you know, that, that life raft in the midst of it all. 
So how did you end up doing family law? So when I mentioned that law firm I worked at in law school, how they had all the different practice groups, the managing partner, he was the head of the family law practice group. And he ended up sort of, I don't want to say taking me under his wing, but he would bring me into meetings, to hearings, to things like that. So when I got out of school and I, like I said, I mentioned I worked at a, a commercial lit firm for like two months, three months. It just was so boring to me. So I thought back, you know, what could I do that's actually something that interacts with people? And I thought back about my grandmother and her working with people. My mom was actually a social worker and it just was interesting. So I started, you know, taking volunteer cases with the Philadelphia Volunteer for the Indigent Program, asking other attorneys if I could shadow them. Um, and then I fell into, uh, you know, my clerkship and all of that. So that's, as soon as I knew I was in the family law arena, I knew it was the right place for me. It just, it was organic. And then I hung my shingle in January of 2013. And what drove you to do that? There's um, a bit of a stigma with anyone who works at like the public defender or the DA's office that there's a shelf life. You either are there for a couple years and then you move on or you're a lifer. And I knew that I wasn't going to be a lifer and I knew I wanted to make a living. And I actually grappled with this for a while. I wanted to make sure I was still going to be helping people, but also being able to make a living for myself and my family. But that's what pushed me to, to, to go out on my own was to be able to still help, but also make a living and to make a name for, you know, myself and also to do things not necessarily within the institutional structure, you know, for better or worse, the public defender still has its own rules and regulations and people you're beholden to. And yeah. like I mentioned at the beginning of our, our talk, I wanted to have that autonomy. I wanted to have that balance. So that's why I knew I wanted to go out on my own. Did it occur to you to have a partner? So I have gone through various iterations of partners, but I look at partnerships very similarly to marriages and you have to find the right fit. And I have gone through a couple, I'd say two major partnerships. It wasn't the right fit. Um, I've had associates work for me. I've had law clerks. I've had enough counsel, but the partnership that I'm ultimately a part of now is the first partnership that has really been of two extremely like-minded women, just like myself, who not only think about the practice of law the same way, but who think about life that way as well. And so it's truly been, you know, a really good fit. You know, there, there comes a point when you're a solo, when you plateau and you can't wear every hat, you can't do the billing and the accounting and the administrative stuff and the marketing and the networking and the practice of law all at once. You need somebody else. And I was yeah. getting to that point. So finding somebody else was an organic next step. It's just finding that right person. Did you consider just hiring other people to do those things? Why was partnering with somebody the answer for you? I think that it was intriguing to me to have somebody else to bounce ideas off of. I wanted to be able to talk cases with other attorneys. I certainly had my friends and colleagues who I would talk to about cases and, and you know, strategy in that regard. Um, and like I said, I had had an of counsel attorney who was there in that capacity, but there's something about being able to shoulder some of that responsibility and walk shoulder to shoulder with somebody as opposed to doing it all, you know, as you know, the autocrat on your own. And I think had I not found the right partnership, I would have perhaps maintained being a solo, but I see value in it. And I think that two heads are better than one in, in some cases, but again, has to be the right fit. So what hats do you wear? Oh, 
How do you divide so, those responsibilities? I think it somewhat has gone with our forte and our skill set. I wear the hat of our website, social media, networking, marketing person, just because when I was a solo and I had no, you know, really good reputation out there yet as a brand new baby lawyer, I built my practice on social media. So I got to know how that, you know, all worked and could work for you. So I take care of that. Um, Shira is our billing machine. She's the one who does all the accounting and the bookkeeping. Sarah does a lot of the interpersonal relationship management in the office. Um, she also does a lot of the collections. So we're all constantly talking to each other about what's going on, but we also know that everybody doing everything isn't productive. And we've fallen into our respective roles because of our interest level, but also because of, you know, who we're talking to out in the community or because what we've seen works and how we like to work together and interact. Like just recently, I, you know, said to, to Sarah and Shara, look, I think we need to do a little refresh of our website. Let's get some new content up or whatever. And rather than, you know, fight me on it, they said, you know what, that's your real house. Go for it. Just show us what you come up with and we'll go from there. And same thing, Shira wanted to use a different case management program. And so she did the research and she said, Hey, I really like this one. We should try it. And we defer, you know, to each other on that. And I think that that level of trust is really what helps us when we do sort of bring things to each other to, to try and experience as much as we like to think we can do it all women, you know, can do it all, but not at the same time. So we need a little bit of a, a little bit of a break you know, and the support of other women. Yeah, definitely. There's a quote that I love. I don't know who said it. I don't even remember where I saw it, but it says that you can do anything, but you can't do everything. Yeah. I believe it a hundred percent. I think that when you try to do that, you're doing everything, you know, at like a mediocre level and you want to do it all well. So why not, you know, get somebody else to help you and, and do it shoulder to shoulder. I, I completely agree. So how, what percentage of your day is law and what percentage is business management? You know, before my current partnership, it was a little bit more business management. And I found that that was not necessarily something I enjoyed. I certainly enjoyed the growth of my firm and managing younger attorneys. I really like being able to manage and encourage and train new attorneys. But I'd say probably 75-25. You know, 75% is actual client interfacing, meaning I'm taking new initial client consultations. I'm working on my active caseload. I'm, you know, working back and forth with the court, with my assistant, the whole nine. Um, And then the other 25% is, you know, managing. I have a designated assistant just for me. We brought her on recently um, because my caseload was what it was. And um, and then the other part is communicating with my my partners. You know, we've got our running group chat. We have our check-ins. And, and that's thinking about, you know, do we want to comment on our blog about, you know, a new change in the law? Or what do we want to post about RBG? Or, you know, what are we going to do about hiring an associate? How's, you know, the firm going to, you know, navigate the pandemic? We absolutely spend, you know, a, a portion of our day every day talking about that. So tell me what answers you came up with. What are you doing about RBG? (laughs) So after we cried, we, we posted, you know, just her impact. I think that for, for female attorneys, she just was such a role model in so many ways, not only as she showed us her personal life and being someone with a devoted partner and spouse, but also as a working mom. But, you know, she showed us that we can absolutely do it and persist and push. 
Um, so we, we posted on social media as everyone does these days, but we talked together about her and what we, you know, like and quotes that we, you know, resonate with us. And, you know, we all went back and watched the documentary and, you know, that was something to make sure we talked about it, to make sure we experienced it together. And I don't know if you saw, but the fearless girl statue in New York, someone went up and put the descent collar on her. So we, we posted about that and just, we wanted people in our community to know she meant something to us and, you know, that we weren't gonna, we weren't gonna forget her and that we were going to continue to emulate, you know, what she stood for. Actually, RBG, you know, I kind of put her in the same category as your grandmother because they were both doing things at a time when women didn't do those things. Mm -hmm. And we still need women like that. We do. And I appreciate so much you saying that you put her in a category with my grandmother. And I think the work is never done. I mean, as much as women have made strides, I got called sweetie the other day. I've been called young lady in court. So, I mean, while I appreciate that they think I'm so youthful, that's not something that I want to to have in the professional arena. Um, and I think as far as we have come, there is certainly more to be done, which is what's also so concerning about the fact that she passed in an election year and, you know, not to get into politics, but to understand and what people don't, I think, fully grasp is the impact that a Supreme Court justice has on a generation and on our lives and our future. And when I was upset and crying about her, her passing, part of that was because I wanted to ensure that the work that was done by my grandmother, by my mother, by me, now for my daughter is continuing on because I think if we do get complacent and we do think that, oh, the work was already you know, laid out for us and we can just coast, I think that that's where we'll fall backwards to recognize that, that we need to keep pushing. What are some things that you see now in our world that you would like to be different or better for your daughter? Well, I think that this pandemic has really focused and hyper scrutinized some of the cracks in our society. I think what I really wanted or what I want for my daughter is equality, not just for gender, but for race as well. And I want there to be um, an equity in our justice system. And I know that that's not there. One of the big things that I'm passionate about is abortion rights and LGBTQ rights. I want to make sure that everyone can get access to what they need. You know, very often we live on, you know, the East Coast, we live in the Northeast, we're considered the more, you know, liberal progressive area, but people forget that, you know, not everywhere in the country has that same access. So really what I want for my daughter is for her to grow up in a world where people don't look at her as, you know, a white Jewish girl, but, you know, a just for what she is, a woman doing what she's doing, whatever career path she chooses. So I'd like to see, you know, that change. And I think what is, you know, sad to me is that we can be at this low point in our country and still not be unified and everybody's still fighting and bickering over things that are so entrenched from years ago. I thought we were farther along in 2020. So I'd like to see some of that systematic, you know, entrenched prejudice and bias broken down, whether, like I said, it's for women or for gender or for race. I'm a very big advocate for Planned Parenthood. I think that um, people don't realize that abortion work is not all that they do and that really they provide health services for people who don't have access to it um, for both men and women, for boys and girls. So I always try to donate, you know, to Planned Parenthood annually. Another cause that I really am supportive of is the Trevor Project. 
They are actually a suicide prevention hotline and organization for LGBTQ youth. And I think that that's something that's super important. I, I really am very much an advocate for the LGBTQ community. Specifically in my work, it comes through in the adoption work that I do. But per- personally, you know, as far as if I can donate money or time, And then also voting organizations. Right now, there's several organizations out there who are interested in raising money for campaigns that could help, you know, sway a seat from a Republican seat to a Democratic seat, or at least getting the word out about how important it is to vote. Um, I think that, you know, the younger demographic doesn't quite understand how important their voices are or how much they could mobilize. So I think that Unfortunately, I'm at the top end of the millennial group, though I hate when people call me a millennial, but, you know, I have a 16 year old niece who doesn't know, you know, what it was like to be without internet. So I think that that's a a personal thing that's not necessarily related to an organization, but just reminding people that, you know, we don't need to just be sucked into our phones and relying on Google and, you know, social media that we should really get out there, get active, educate ourselves and, you know, be engaged. But I think people are losing sight of that. And then even now that we've sort of been forced into our homes and have had to rely on technology to stay connected, that's another sort of piece that we all have to grapple with and whether that's good, bad, or, you know, indifferent. Well, I interviewed a psychologist and she said to be careful taking away social media and things like the gadgets and the devices from your kids because we see it, and this is again like a generational difference, we see it as sometimes something negative, but for younger kids where it's all they've ever known, that is the way that they connect and that's the way that they engage. That's the way that they just have social interaction and those things are important. So how do you reconcile that? You know, that's a really great question because I mean, my daughter is so young, but I've already seen her, you know, interaction with technology. She loves to look at pictures of herself on my phone and she knows how to swipe, you know, side by side. But We've also noticed the negative of that. When we take the phone away, she melts down and she's a really even keel kid. So when we see that, you know, it's almost like the, the, you know, depiction of, of screen addiction, you know, in its simplest form. But, you know, I think there's a balance. Like I said, technology can be great. You can learn. There's a lot at your fingertips. But when I see, you know, my nine-year-old nephew zoned out like a zombie playing Minecraft, I mean, that's not necessarily the best. And I think, there's a balance between, you know, setting a limit on that time. And it doesn't have to be a negative thing to say, oh, only two hours of screen time. But, you know, you want to be able to to give them enough, but still recognize and let them understand that it's not the the everything of their day. There can be other stuff outside of technology. My grandmother's generation would say, go play outside. Oh, yeah. No, I don't. Although I have to say during COVID, because we're sort of, well, we're still in the middle of COVID, but when it really was at its height and we were all quarantining, it was kind of nice that I noticed a lot more people outside of my neighborhood. I saw families going for walks. I saw you know people outside with their dogs. I saw kids outside. It was a noticeable difference and it was oh, really nice. I agree with you. So I've lived in my current house for four years and I knew two neighbors and it's a big neighborhood. Um, and now because everyone was going on these like nightly walks and spending more time outside, I know so many more neighbors, so many more people have been coming out of their houses, 
talking to people, even if someone was just sitting on their front step and, you know, you and I found out that we actually have a connection with my neighborhood. Your grandmother is my backyard neighbor. And, you know, I wouldn't have necessarily known that had I not knocked on doors when we were doing that construction in our backyard, which not the exact same as the, the pandemic, but we're seeing people out all the time. There's a park now near my house that everybody goes to that I was not seeing at all last year. So yeah, it's one of the, I think, unexpected positive results. I will admit that there are definitely times when I go outside, you know, it could be to check the mail and I'll see my neighbor and I'll just be like, oh God, please don't talk to me. I don't want to talk to anybody right now. And I think that's true of this Northeast area. I think we're just kind of like that. But it's interesting how I can feel that way. And I know I'm not the only one, but then I can go inside and, and scroll through Instagram, supposedly connecting, which I'm saying with air quotes. So we think that we're all connected, but we're not really. Well, and it's also disingenuous. There's an example I always give. So when I um, was pregnant, I just was not feeling it. I'm not one of those women who was like, oh, I'm a goddess glowing. I just was not feeling it. So I didn't post posts on my social media about that. I didn't say anything positive. I also didn't say anything negative, but I just didn't share anything positive. I have a friend who all she posted about during her pregnancy was, oh, this blessing, this love, this life, and like, you know, the the hearts and like the flower crown. But at the same time, she'd be sending me side text messages saying how much she hated being pregnant and how uncomfortable she was and how sick she was. So she was putting out this completely Mm. fake image of roses and sunshine on her actual Instagram page, but texting me behind closed doors telling me about a completely different experience. So every woman is certainly entitled to whatever experience they want to have or not have, you know, with childbearing, but just be authentic about it. It's the same thing with, you know, with marriages, people will put out these facades of these super, super happy families and these posed photos and, you know, the Pinterest like parties that they're having. And it's just not real. It's just not real. Yeah. I was thinking about that. I know several couples that I know were having problems because, you know, I had talked about it with them and, and then literally the next day, there's a photo of them on Instagram embracing and having a wonderful day strolling through the park. And it's like, but wait a minute, you guys were just talking about getting divorced 24 hours ago. Mm-hmm. And it's not that you have to post on Facebook, hey, you know, I was just talking to my spouse last night about getting a divorce, but you're right. There is something disingenuous about making everything seem rosy on social media. Yeah. And I think that's sort of what I mean too when I say we're not more connected because of social media. And, you know, this isn't a new idea. I didn't come up with this myself. I've heard this discussion before and I, it can be very damaging to people to see all these things, especially teenagers mm-hmm. who don't have fully formed brains, you know, don't really have the emotional intelligence to process this. When they see everything is perfect on Instagram and they know that they're not, they know that their life is not perfect. And how do they reconcile that? So not that you have to, I want to start worrying you with all these parenting questions, but have you thought about how to, how you're going to approach that with your own daughter? Yeah. I mean, I feel like just because it's social media, doesn't mean it's not an issue that's come up. Like 
we used to flip through magazines and see the unattainable bodies of models and things like that. So I think what has always been told to me and what I plan to carry on to her is you're you, you're fantastic the way that you are. love what you've got. Don't compare yourself to anybody else. Um, But I also think, you know, there's something to be said about telling her that the grass is not always greener and that you need to understand that there's always something underneath and somebody may be struggling with something that they're not willing to share. Um, And just to, to help show her that there has to be a reality and a grounding in reality. Um, And also I think that we place a lot of effort on perfectionism. I know I personally do. Um, And I think that I've done a lot of work in my adult life of trying to realize that not everybody can be perfect all the time. So that's something I really want her to understand. Okay. So maybe you're not going to be 100% perfect, but you're perfect in your own way. And, you know, doing what you're doing is fine. I just, I don't want her to compare to others as well. And I think that's one of the biggest things that social media does. It puts this ability to compare to celebrity, you know, and to each other in like this sharp focus. And, you know, I also think it's important to, to keep some of it back, to, to yeah. hold some of it back. I had friends who decided they weren't going to share their children on social media or they were going to wait a period of time before they did that because they wanted to, you know, make sure that only the right people were seeing pictures of their newborn or of their child. And, and I, I, you know, I, I like that idea. Um, I wish I could have done that, but that's, you know, a testament to how connected our community is to social media. I couldn't resist posting pictures. So, so I didn't mean to talk about social media that no. long. No, no, it's okay. It's a topic that comes up all the time. So I'm happy to talk about it. I want to talk about what your vision is for the future for your firm. If there's personal goals that you have. Sure. So I think I mentioned when I was at my prior partnership, I really liked the business development and the expansion and the growth of the business. Um, But with that, I think I learned a really nice lesson that um, bigger isn't always better. So right now our firm is the three partners. We have an of counsel attorney, and then we have two assistants paralegals. Um, Our goal is to bring on an associate Um, in the future. And I think that one of the mistakes I had made in the past was just trying to gobble up as much of the good talent that was out there and making them then fit into our mold as opposed to searching for someone who would fit into our firm culture. And that's really what we're about. We don't need to necessarily be you know, the churn and burn overmaxed caseload firm, our firm is looking to grow at our natural pace. So I think, you know, over the coming years, we'll bring on an associate, but I don't necessarily think, you know, additional partners are in our future or any of that. We already have three offices, which I love. Um, Our main office is Cherry Hill. And then we have a space in Center City, Philly, and then also in Princeton. And I think that's, that's our area. I don't think that we see ourselves necessarily expanding to somewhere else. I think we see ourselves growing within what we have. Like I I mentioned this before too, I really like teaching new young attorneys who are coming up and the law clerk that we had, she was a student at Drexel. She's now clerking for a judge in Gloucester County, New Jersey. And she's hopefully the one we bring back to, you know, to work with us as an associate and just working and learning with her while she was even, you know, a law clerk. That's something that I really would love to see. And then as far as, you know, personally, 
I love having my daughter and maybe I'll have another, another kid in the future, but I'm still holding out for medical science to develop and let men uh, carry babies. <laughs> so we definitely will not see that in our lifetime. I, I know, I know, I know, I know. I just, like I said, I love my daughter and I love being a mom. I just did not have a very easy pregnancy experience. So I wasn't super interested in, in doing that again anytime soon. But, you know, being a mom was a surprisingly, a surprisingly very rewarding thing that I, I was, you know, caught off guard a little bit by is how much I would really enjoy it. So, you know, cer certainly family expansion would be up there. And you could life. always do what Kim K did and have a surrogate. I know, you know, I, and I, I am in the right field for it. I write surrogacy and review surrogacy contracts for a living sometimes. So I'm actually working with a couple, a couple of couples right now, which is interesting in the time of COVID, but yes, it could be, I could do it for myself as well, for sure. But we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Well, maybe you could have a reality show if you decide to do that. <laughs> you know, it is so funny that you say that because that would be my dream to be on a reality show. And really? I say that somewhat facetiously. I actually, my former partner and I, she and I were interviewed by a production company. They were trying to do some like relationship show and we were interviewed to do a reality show. And, you know, I'm a very big Bravo fan. It's my guilty pleasure. It's sort of my release when I've had a very stressful day. But my husband always says, look, he says, I don't want to live a public life. I, I don't want to do that. <laughs> That is so funny because I've always had a secret desire to be on a reality show oh. too, yeah. but my boyfriend is very private and would not like that at my all. My husband says he's the one who in the back would be like the blurred out face in the picture and like, no, he, he wouldn't want to be on it. And look, you know, not for, for nothing. He's not wrong. I mean, I've seen it change a lot of lives. And we saw, especially in our home state, you know, everything with Teresa Judice and all of that and, you know, how that all played out. But it's just fun. It's, it's a fantasy for sure. How did you find that opportunity? Or did they just look you up? They looked us up. So they were, the show was pitched as like a, almost like a pre-marriage boot camp thing. So like these people would meet, these couples would meet with an attorney to sort of talk about a prenup. They would meet with a financial advisor. They'd meet with a therapist. And then like the idea was to see if they could do what they needed to do in the seven days to still then decide to get married. I don't think it was super fleshed out, but they found us and had seen some videos we had done online. And I'm sure it didn't hurt that we were younger. And, you know, um, I think they were looking for females at the time, which was great. Um, and this was sort of right on the tail end of um, that show that Bravo did, Untying the Knot, with another local New Jersey attorney colleague of ours. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, they were looking to sort of build off of that. And ultimately, they were thrilled with, you know, what we put on tape. The show just never got out of development. And, you know. Oh, wow. Well, so you actually started filming. Oh, no, no. They oh. did um, interviews with us, though, on film to send to casting. Okay. And they were, if it had moved forward, that was, they were super excited about it. But no, we never started filming anything or doing anything like that. Well, I, I would still put that out into the universe. It's never too late. And if yeah. you need any help, you call me. I will. I will. Maybe we'll be on like the next, you know, Real Housewives franchise or something. We'll find something for the law for sure. So what else is on your bucket list? Oh. I know being on a reality show now. Anything else? 
definitely being on a reality show, I'd like to travel a little more. I know everybody really says that, but my husband and I, when we got married, we decided we were going to travel a lot before we had a kid. And then we were going to take our kid on travel with us, which obviously the pandemic kind of, you know, stopped that. But I'd like to experience a little bit more outside of, of New Jersey. So that would be, that would be on my bucket list. So where do you want to go? I'd love to go to Costa Rica or somewhere in South America. I have not been to South America yet, and I've traveled extensively in Europe um, and, and, and in the U.S., but I've never been to South America. I had another colleague, another lawyer, another female lawyer. She went to Peru and did a really cool trek, like up high up into the mountains, and, and that I think that would be very cool to do like a rainforest trip or a mountain trip in, in South America. Well, you know what? I, everyone says they can't travel now because of the pandemic, but I don't know if it's the worst time to travel. I think you wouldn't want to go someplace and be in crowds, but I actually know a few people that because we can all work remotely, mm -hmm. they just rented a house for a month, just went away and they're just living in an Airbnb for a month. You know, you're, you're not the first person that said that to me. I have a friend from law school who she works in, um, like, she's an insurance. She's a, she's a transactional attorney. She's the other kind. And she said the same thing. She's like, we're renting a house. We're going for three weeks. Like, I can work anywhere. I can't look at the inside of my home office anymore. And I, I sort of am sensing that that's going to be the trend, especially as we move into the winter months when people can't go outside anymore. I think yeah. my family, we've been a little lucky. We have a, a you know, nice place to be outside, but I can only imagine the people who are cooped up. And I don't necessarily know if I'm going to, you know, hop on a plane with my daughter right now, but you're right. Getting a change of scenery, whether it's an Airbnb in another state or somewhere else, I think that's a great idea. Did you experience any blessings that came out of the, this COVID experience that we're having? Yeah, it's really funny you say that. So I read something that the universe heard us essentially that we were all living these extremely busy lives. We were commuting, we were busy, nonstop working. There was just this like congestion about our lives and that we were losing the sentiment of family and being together and that the pandemic for better or worse stopped us in our tracks and sort of made us think about that and get back to the, the feeling of being at home and a little bit of a slower pace. And I think for me, I was commuting between our three offices and sometimes for, you know, 50 to 60 minutes a day, same with my husband. And I was missing out on that time with my daughter. So I think the blessing was that, you know, I was able to spend more time with her. And also I can pop out at lunch and sit with her, or I can, you know, go out and take a walk around the block with her and get some fresh air. So I think that has been the biggest you know, blessing is being able to see her and be with her more. Otherwise, you know, what I was seeing before was I'd see her for a minute before I left for work in the morning. I'd see her for like an hour before she went to sleep at night. And I was missing, you know, that time. So I think that's been my biggest, my biggest benefit. And the other shift that I've really seen is it was almost like you couldn't use childcare or lack thereof or your child or your family as an excuse or a reason to be late for something or to miss something or to say no to something. And now it's like almost expected that like, you know, you're going to see a kid run by in the back of a zoom, or you're going to say, look, I'm sorry, I can't meet with you at such a time because I don't have childcare. And I think that that has really changed. And that's something that working mothers have had to deal with for years. But now I think that there's a lot more of like a 
a sympathy for that that I think men didn't necessarily realize they needed to have because now men are all of a sudden in that same boat. So that's been another, I think, benefit to it all. So I like to end each interview with a series of questions. You might have answered this question already, but who's the one person alive or dead that you most admire? Oh, that's so good. I would definitely say RBG is on that list, but also Princess Diana. I think, you know, um, people used to always ask me if I was named after her. I I wasn't. I mean, I was born in the 80s, but no, I wasn't. But I just, I always really admired her grace and her poise, you know, in the face of, of what she dealt with in her short lifetime. That's a good answer. I haven't heard that one yet. Thank you. What would you say is the best life advice that you've ever gotten? Oh my gosh, the best life advice. <sighs> I I think that the best life advice I've gotten was to get back up. I think that we've all had you know, our, our share of struggles. And I think that for me, when I wanted to wallow and I had somebody say, you know, fight, get back up, do it, push through, that was definitely one of them. And then also I think my granny used to say, you know, don't let the men push you around. Don't let anybody tell you that you're not good or, or less than or any of that. So I think it sort of goes hand in hand, you know, get up, fight, stand up for what you believe in for sure. And also a, wear a good outfit, look the part. <laughs> That's also some great advice. I am a big, you know, uh, subscriber in overdressing putting on the lipstick, putting on the high heels, feeling good. I think you posted the other day about how it's just such a nice self-esteem boost. And I have really subscribed to that during quarantine. I've been trying to get up, do my hair, do my makeup, put on an outfit, go differentiate, you know, the sweatpants from the work outfits to, to feel good about working and, and being, you know, being at work. So yeah, self-care in its purest form. I mean, at at the very least, you should be wearing something that you would not be embarrassed if you had to run outside because it was a fire. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. And, And look, there are certainly days when I don't feel like it, but I try, you know, I try to push myself to do it. And it's a moment of self care for me. I really think that. What is your idea of perfect happiness? Oh my goodness. Perfect happiness. I think it's this unattainable idea of having it all. I think perfect happiness to me, simple stuff. My husband's happy. I'm happy. My child's happy. We're all healthy. You know, we're, we have enough, meaning we have enough food to eat and money to sustain and a roof over our heads. I don't necessarily think that there's anything, you know, ostentatious that I need perfect happiness to me is not like a private jet or anything like that, but it's just, you know, perfect balance too. a balance in my life of everybody being happy. Yeah. Which is different for everybody. It is. And mine's a really simple view. I mean, I I also don't think that you can say what's going to make me happy today makes me happy tomorrow because everything's, you know, ever evolving and your goals are different as you get older. But for right now, I would just like to have, you know, like I said, a happy relationship with my husband, happy relationship with my daughter and just be, be, be simple and, and, you know, be happy with what we have rather than striving for something else. Okay. So like $50 million falls out of the sky. You don't have to worry about money anymore. What's your dream job? Like your ultimate dream job? Oh yeah. I mean, right away I'm, I'm quitting the law. (laughs) I mean, not that I don't love being a lawyer. I absolutely do. But I think I would probably do something in fashion. 
I just would. I just love the whole curated process of shoes and bags and hand, you know, made leather, you know, accessories and, and jewelry. And I really love that kind of stuff. I think that I would do something in fashion. I really would. For a while, I looked at potentially doing something in fashion in like the legal arena, but that's where you get into those contracts. Yes. Not into that. But did you play with Barbie? Oh, yeah. I, I love dressing up Barbie. Me too. I had the Barbie dream house. I, you know, I was never the one that cut the hair. I never cut the Barbie's hair, but I did have a lot of the dresses. I was very into Barbie. I never cut the hair either, but I really was obsessed with dressing Barbie. Mm-hmm. I loved how all the clothes were always so sparkly. Yep. And the little shoes, like oh they're God. so tiny. I don't know how I didn't lose them, but. I, know. I used to, I remember I had this one velvet gown, this purple velvet gown that my Barbie would wear. And I, I loved that one. And she had matching pink shoes. It was just, uh, I loved that. Isn't that funny that you remember that? Yeah, I know all these years later. And you know, it's funny. My parents did save a lot of things from my childhood and we've since, you know, brought them back out and, and given them to Vivian, but they didn't save my Barbies. They just didn't. Oh, I wish I still had all my Barbies. I, I know. I to have my Barbies back. I know. I would too. I mean, and you know, it's funny. My brother has said to me recently, you know, well, isn't Barbie like the anti-feminist and like, don't you hate all these Disney movies now that you used to love because, you know, they just perpetuate the stereotypes. No, I, you know, I think that there's something to be said about what I learned from Barbie and from the Disney fairy tales and all of that. And, you know, we can't all be cynical and jaded all the time. We have to have yeah. some, you know, hope out there. Okay. So final question, is there a book that made a big impact on you? Ooh, that is a good one. A lot of people were super interested in Eat, Pray, Love when that came out. So I definitely was in on that trend. But prior to that, Breakfast at Tiffany's is my favorite book. Oh. I'm a very big Audrey Hepburn person. And, you know, she's probably an answer to that first question you asked me too. But Breakfast at Tiffany's. And then recently I read Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed. I don't know if you've read that yet. No, I haven't. I've been seeing that around though. That one I really liked. It's very much in the theme of female empowerment and sort of taking off the shackles of sort of what society thinks we should be and do and all that. But I think of those three books, I mean, the theme really in all of them is like female independence and discovering yourself and finding who you are. And yeah, those, those books have really, have really been it for me. Yeah. Were there any business books that you've read, you know, just trying to become a better business owner? I had read two books. One of them was like how to be a great boss. And, you know, there's this other, I can't even, I forget what even the title is. And the reason I forget is because they were so the opposite of actually what I wanted to do in business. I think that I've had, you know, people talk to me about running a law firm, like a fortune 500 company. And I certainly see value in what they're saying, but that's just not for me, I don't want to run a business without thinking about the people, you know, in them. So I think that some of those books really, in fact, I think one of them was written in 2000, like before the collapse of some of the, the big companies in 2008. And like one of the companies that they were trying to emulate was Goldman Sachs. And like some of the ones that people now are like, don't, yeah. don't emulate those. And I don't know. I think that it also didn't resonate with me because all of the CEOs and the, the leaders that they were talking about were men. 
they were all just men. I mean, they were the big companies like Kleenex and Xerox and, you know, Coca-Cola and all, and all of that. And they were, they were men. So they didn't, you know, resonate with me. Um, I was shocked to learn that I think the number is 38. There's only 38 CEOs that are women on the fortune 500 list. Yeah. Which is really astonishing. I mean, 38 out of 500. Oh, I'm not surprised in any way, which is awful. But yeah, I, I definitely think that there should be more there, that we should start pushing for that. And I think that's what we're trying to do. And when you were saying, is there more we could be doing? Should we be pushing forward? I think absolutely. I mean, it's the same thing, you know, we see in our government and our representation. You know, we saw more women than ever, you know, now in the House and in the Senate. And that's just something we have to keep, you know, perpetuating. And I think for me as a woman, because there aren't necessarily as many business books out there that can help you with that kind of thing, I've really more so been drawn to memoirs. So Mm -hmm. like I read Becoming by Michelle Obama. I read Girl Boss. There was other memoirs out there like Glennon Doyle's that I think have been in and of themselves, not necessarily geared towards business, but have been geared towards that bigger overall picture which I also think speaks volumes about the fact that women are not just looking to do self-improvement in business only. They're looking to do it in their entire, you know, life and in, in every facet and then sort of interweave business with family, with self aspirational hobbies and things like that. So that I think might be telling too. Well, we'll look forward to your memoir one day. (laughs) We'll see. see. I think, you know, maybe we'll, maybe we'll have my memoir play out in reality TV. That'll be my. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I know we spent a little more time talking than that's always how these go. They always end up being longer. No, time flew, but thank you very, very much for having me. I was really excited to, to talk with you from the minute that I started following your show and hearing you talk to other women and just knowing the, the vibe that, that you put out. I knew we would, we would have a lot to talk about and a lot in common. You know, I really appreciate that so much. I love talking to people and hearing their stories. I think everybody has a story. And now I got to know a little bit of yours women can be such an incredible force when we all really support and encourage each other. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think that is exactly a conversation I could have for hours and hours and hours, because I think that if women got out of their, their own way on some things um, and really said, you know, put, put their money where their mouth is when they say, look, I support other women and they really supported other women. Truly we could be unstoppable hundred percent. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call, the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.